This is KJZZ News, your listener-supported public radio station. I'm Tiara Vianne, and here are this week's stories you don't want to miss. Thanks so much for listening. For the week of August 22, 2022, here are some top stories. Earlier this month, residents and business owners filed a lawsuit against the city of Phoenix. They say city leaders aren't doing enough to address a growing encampment of people experiencing homelessness. And that growth has been explosive in the past year, as the number of unsheltered people living there has more than tripled. Bridget Dowd has more. Just a few blocks from Arizona's Capitol building, the streets are lined with shopping carts, blankets, and discarded furniture. Hundreds of people have set up tents or built makeshift shelters out of crates and tarps in the area, commonly called the zone. We have to sleep on the ground and some of us don't even have a a cover. Taliba Salahuddin has found a shady spot to park a cart that holds all of her personal belongings. Next to her on the curb, Kodisha Hendricks says no one should have to live like this. This place is raggedy. Flies roaming around, cockroaches, birds everywhere. Unsheltered people have been sleeping in this area for years, but there hasn't always been this many. Last July, about 250 people were camped out in this neighborhood. This summer, that number grew to more than 1,000. It's a little bit dangerous, too. Alberto Amaro works for a cleaning company that's been hired to pick up some of the trash on the streets. We've seen a lot of people get shot, get killed around here, too. You know, you just got to be careful around here, you know. Plaintiffs in the lawsuit against the city agree. They say the increase in people has led to more crime and littered the area with trash and human waste, not to mention the number of people who've died from sleeping outside in a place where daytime summer temperatures rarely drop below 100 degrees. It's more of a humanitarian issue, and I I genuinely care about people, and I can't see people live in these types of conditions. Carl Freund is one of the business owners involved in the lawsuit. He told KJZZ's The Show the city has taken a hands-off approach when it comes to the zone. Whatever we're doing now is not working. We've got to try something else. The suit says the city has not only failed to provide enough housing, but it isn't enforcing ordinances that would make the area safer either. The zone surrounds Phoenix's Human Services Campus, a nonprofit that offers a variety of resources to those experiencing homelessness. We see this high number of unsheltered people living around us because they want to access all of those services, yet we can't shelter everybody. Amy Schwabenlender is the executive director at the campus. She says they have about 900 beds, but that's not enough, and resources are tight everywhere. And we don't have enough shelter beds in all of Maricopa County, so we can't refer people to other places to go for shelter and services. She says a number of factors could be contributing to the increase, like rising rents, high inflation, and the end of pandemic-era eviction moratoriums. It really has pushed people out of housing that they've had. We're seeing more first-time homeless, people who've never been in this situation before and they don't know where to go. The city said in a statement that it recognizes the challenges contributing to an increase in homelessness and pointed to the additional funding it's allocated for homelessness programs. The city of Phoenix over the past two years has spent an unprecedented amount of funds on homelessness. Phoenix City Councilwoman Yasemin Ansari oversees the district where the zone is located. She highlighted some of the same efforts mentioned by the city. Last year, we spent about $50 million, and this year with our American Rescue Plan dollars, about $70 million on new shelters, transitional housing, and bridge housing. 
And we are still working to get those up and running. She says one of the bigger issues is if people don't see the problem in their own backyard, they're less likely to do something about it. I don't believe that any neighborhood should face the brunt of Maricopa County's homelessness crisis, which is exactly what is happening. Ansari says they need support from other cities, as well as more state and federal funds to tackle the crisis. If there's one thing all parties agree on, it's that as long as a lack of resources exists, the zone will too. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In business news. No major city in the U.S. gets more triple-digit days than Phoenix, but that famous desert heat is leading to more and more deaths. Advocates say the real concern is not that Phoenix has too much hot weather, but not enough homes. Katherine Davis-Young reports. It's a hot morning, and the nonprofit Circle the City has parked one of its mobile clinics in front of a North Phoenix soup kitchen. The group provides medical care to homeless patients. Inside their trailer, 64-year-old Paul Yeager is getting his vitals checked. He's HIV positive, and on most nights he sleeps in a park nearby. He credits this medical team with keeping him alive. I got a lot of life to live. And with God's help, maybe they can live another 10 years. But surviving summers in Phoenix without shelter is hard. Back in July, when temperatures hovered above 110 for over a week, Jaeger says he collapsed on a park bench one day for hours. His friends tried to cool him down by pouring water over him. I'm not good anyhow, so it's just, it's not good, not helping for me to be out in this kind of weather. The Phoenix heat is getting more dangerous each summer. From 2005 to 2015, Maricopa County averaged 78 heat-associated deaths per year. But the death toll has risen each summer since 2016. Last year, the county had a record 339 heat deaths. 2022 is on track to be even deadlier. Unfortunately, we've seen a pattern over the past six, seven, eight years that's exactly opposite of what we would be hoping to see. Dr. David Hondula is director of Phoenix's Office of Heat Response and Mitigation. The city created the office less than a year ago. It's the first of its kind in the country, and Hondula says the mission is simple. Each and every one of these deaths can be prevented. But he's up against incredible challenges. For one thing, Phoenix's already hot temperatures are rising. The National Weather Service projects Phoenix will be averaging more than 120 days per year with triple-digit heat by the the end of this decade. That concerns Hondula, but he says it's not just climate change that's driving the recent staggering rise in fatalities. My interpretation as the increase is much more related to what's happening with social services than it is related to climate. As housing prices have skyrocketed, the region's unsheltered homeless population has tripled since 2016. Hondula says that's turning heat into a more critical threat. Our best estimate is that the unsheltered community is at about 200 to 300 times higher risk than the rest of the population. It's not just the long hours spent outdoors. Hondula says the unsheltered population also has limited access to health care, increased likelihood of chronic health problems, and high rates of substance abuse, all of which can exacerbate risk. County records show heat deaths are increasingly occurring outdoors among unhoused people, and about 60% of cases involve substance use. Dr. Kevin Foster is director of the Arizona Burn Center. He 
he's seeing the same trends. This is a really bad summer for us. Pavement can heat up to over 150 degrees in the Phoenix sun. Every summer, Foster treats patients who fall, can't get up, and develop severe burns. In the past, patients were usually older adults. Now they're younger, often homeless, and more of their falls are related to drug use. They go down and they stay down for a long time, and then they end up not only getting really bad burns, but they suffer heat prostration and heat stroke. And oftentimes their temperatures come in and they're 108 or 109 degrees Fahrenheit. And dehydration and exhaustion can be disastrous for mental health, too, says psychiatric nurse practitioner Nina Gomez back at Circle the City's mobile clinic. The stress from the heat really exacerbates psychosis, and then it becomes so much harder to get people in and to engage in any services. She says it feels like a vicious cycle. The unsheltered population grows, leaving more people exposed to heat risk. Meanwhile, the heat makes it harder to help people out of homelessness. Over the past year, the city of Phoenix and Maricopa County have made large investments to address homelessness, but these issues can't be solved overnight. So as the summer drags on, Circle the City and other organizations carry on as best they can with short-term solutions. We're trying to intervene early, so get people hydrated, get them some food, see if they need anything before it gets to a full crisis. For now, though, advocates say the crisis is impacting more and more Arizonans. Katherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In science news, one in three Americans between the ages of 65 and 74 has hearing loss, and nearly half of those older than 75 have difficulty hearing. Yes, hearing aids are available, but not always accessible, as they can cost thousands of dollars out of pocket. But as Kathy Ritchie reports, a big change is on the way. The news seemingly appeared to break on Twitter the morning of August 16th. A flurry of tweets, including one from President Biden, appeared on the social media site about how the Food and Drug Administration finalized a rule making over-the-counter hearing aids available to the public starting in mid-October. It's exciting because the landscape is wide open and there's going to be tremendous competition. Dr. Justin Golub is an ear, nose and throat doctor and associate professor at Columbia University in New York City. He's been anticipating this news for a while. Around this, I think there's going to be a lot of innovation because these consumer electronics companies are going to step into the game and they're among the most innovative companies out there. Companies like Apple, for example, and big box stores like Best Buy have plans to jump into this space later this fall. But what makes this announcement even more significant is that it'll make hearing aids more affordable. That's because unlike prescription hearing aids, which require a hearing test and an audiologist who fits these devices to meet a person's unique needs, over-the-counter hearing aids will sort of be a one-size-fits-all product. Michelle Michaels is a hearing health care program manager at the Arizona Commission for the Deaf and Hard of Hearing. These devices, some of them will be even $1,000. I don't think we're going to see anything too much less than a few hundred dollars because it's just simply really difficult to make that high quality of a device for less than that. Okay, $1,000 is a lot, especially for older adults on a fixed income. But here's the thing. 
insurance companies, for the most part, have not covered hearing health care. And it's not just private insurance companies. There's actually an exemption that says Medicare will not cover hearing aids when it, when Medicare was started way back when. Uh, hearing wasn't seen as, as a health care issue. Michael says it's not just older adults who can't access hearing aids. In Arizona, she says, access, the state's Medicaid program, covers hearing health care up to the age of 21. But after 21, there's just not a lot out there. According to the National Institute on Deafness and Other Communication Disorders, close to 29 million adults could benefit from hearing aids. But prescription hearing aids can cost a fortune. Here's Golub again. A regular pair of hearing aid is probably at least $3,000 on average, with high-end pairs approaching five or $6,000 or possibly even more, which is just incredibly expensive. Besides the potential cost savings, there's something else this democratization of hearing aids could minimize. Ageism. If children have hearing loss, there's a very good chance that they'll get diagnosed and treated and wear a hearing aid. But older adults? The rate of hearing treatment is, is pretty low. It's uh, frankly quite abysmal. Over 80% of people over 80 have hearing loss, but under 20% actually wear a hearing aid. And this lack of awareness or even interest in providing hearing health care to older adults is cause for big concern. Golub was an author of a recent paper that looked at those glaring discrepancies between children and older adults. He and his colleagues noted that even mild hearing loss could lead to cognitive decline and dementia. While more studies are needed, they wrote the evidence no longer supports the assumption that mild hearing loss is innocuous in adults. Over-the-counter hearing aids would target exactly that, mild to moderate hearing loss in people over the age of 18. One of the biggest pros of this happening is that it will de-stigmatize wearing hearing aids. I mean, already hearing devices, or, or I should say, or rather wearing devices in your ears has become commonplace as we all walk around with things in our ears doing Zooms all day. And this will take it to the to the next level. And with companies like Apple possibly getting into the game, it seems like that line between headphones and hearing aids is blurring. That said, the FDA in its final rule also issued guidance to clarify the differences between hearing aids, which are medical devices, and personal sound amplification devices, which help those with normal hearing amplify sounds. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. Now from KJZZ's original productions. Does Arizona have enough water to support more microchip production? Here's the show co-host, Mark Brody. President Biden earlier this month signed the Chips and Science Act into law. Among other things, the measure aims to spur investment in domestic semiconductor chip manufacturing. Both of Arizona's U.S. senators say they expect Arizona to be a part of that and for the new law to build on the state's history as a chip manufacturing hub. But manufacturing facilities tend to use a lot of water, and Arizona found out last week it'll have its allocation of Colorado River water cut again next year. My next guest says semiconductor plants will generally use between 9 and 30 million gallons of water a day. Sarah Porter is director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. And Sarah, what does a potential increase in this kind of manufacturing mean for the state's water situation? Of course, semiconductor fabrication is a high water use industry, and so um, no one is going to invest in developing a plant in any community in Arizona without making sure that that community has uh, sufficient water in its portfolio for the, the plant's demands. And so that's sort of, you know, it, it will be a question. It, it already is a, a question, and it will be a question. Um, and whether or not a community has enough water 
to support a new semiconductor plant really depends, I mean, it's very much a local issue. Each municipality has its own water portfolio with its own sources of supply. And so from community to community, you could have two cities next door to each other and they may have very different portfolios and therefore a very different capacity to support a semiconductor plant. So that's kind of first thing, but it's also really important, and maybe you'll get to this, but it's important to keep in mind that something like 85% of the water that goes into the plant, 80 to 85% is, is returned as wastewater. And so it, while it takes, you know, it, it, a lot of water is flowing into the plant, a huge amount of that water flows out of the plant and can be reused. How are our cities and, and companies in Arizona handling this now? Like, how are they trying to figure out, is there enough water for this? And how are cities maybe trying to take that wastewater and, and find another use for it so it's not a waste? Well, cities in the central Arizona, from Phoenix to Tucson, have been maximizing the opportunity to reclaim wastewater for a really long time. Um, this isn't something new for them. So they they've done the stuff that people have seen, like um, use reclaimed water for turf, for golf courses or, or places like that. And many cities put their reclaimed wastewater into aquifers. So they have this, you know, this cleaned, you know, reclaimed water, and they put it into aquifers and accrue storage credits for future use of that water. When you have a high volume wastewater producer, like a semiconductor fabrication plant, there's an opportunity to do direct potable reuse, where the water is sent to the wastewater treatment plant, treated to, you know, a high standard of cleanliness, and then that treated water is sent to the drinking water plant, where it's treated all the way to potable standards. So you mentioned that Central Arizona cities have really become experts in reusing wastewater, that kind of thing. Does that to you indicate that those cities would also be maybe the better candidates for these kinds of facilities, all other things being equal, let's say, you know, economic structure, tax structure, that kind of thing. In Arizona, would the cities that are better at or maybe have more experience doing this kind of thing, would those maybe be better suited for expanded or additional facilities? It really, I think it's going to largely come down, just from the water perspective, it's going to come down to two, really two things, I think. One is, is there sufficient water in the portfolio to be able to accommodate the, the needs of the plant? And the second thing is, can the city, working with the manufacturer, make the infrastructure work out so that the city can recover or or even with the manufacturer um, can they recover that water and and reuse it or make you know make good uses of it so in in a time of water scarcity um, cities that have a longer track record of recovering water and maybe even have some of the infrastructure in place to make that happen i think they do have an edge do you think that there will be cities and communities in Arizona that, absent the water issue, might be good locations for a plant like this, but with water as a consideration, maybe aren't as good of a place? Yes, I do. The supplies of water, available water, 
were basically handed out a long time ago. And so a lot of growth areas that would be maybe in some respects an obvious choice for a big plant because of the big real estate footprint, they won't make a good choice because they can't swing the water and the infrastructure because those growth areas weren't around um, when the allocations were being made of the water supplies that our bigger, older cities rely on and have in hand in their portfolios. Are there other states that are also having to make these kinds of considerations? I mean, obviously, a plant anywhere is going to use the amount of water it's going to use. But given the particular situation in Arizona, does that put us maybe at a disadvantage because of the water considerations and the scarcity we have relative to other states where some of these plants might be looking to expand? Yeah, I haven't ever um, talked to anyone that would, you know, what you're saying makes sense. I've never talked to anyone who's, you know, in like a site locator or someone like that um, about that particular issue. But one thing to keep in mind is that, you know, almost everywhere in the country has its own climate-related challenges. You go to some places and they've got hurricanes. You've got other places, you know, they have tornadoes or sea level rise or whatever, every, almost every place in the country. And the, the challenge for the Southwest is water and making sure to have sufficient water. And, you know, that, that's a challenge that figures into a, a location decision for, for any kind of manufacturing pretty much. But does it make the Phoenix area much more challenging than other parts of the country? You know, I really doubt that. There's no question that that manufacturers of anything are really paying attention to water. I've you know talked with corporate site location consultants who say that water is very much a threshold consideration. Like they, if there's any issue related to water, there are other places they can look. All right. That is Sarah Porter, director of the Kyle Center for Water Policy at ASU's Morrison Institute for Public Policy. Sarah, nice to talk to you again. Thank you. Good to talk with you, Mark. Thanks. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras News. The U.N. logged more than 700 deaths across the U.S.-Mexico border in 2021. That's the highest annual number since at least 2014. This year's death toll is on pace to meet that record. From our Fronteras desk in Tucson, Elisa Resnick looks into one migrant's death in Arizona and the effort to find him. It's mid-July and the desert is green from the heavy monsoon. James Holman is handing out walkie-talkies, bright hats, and extra water to a group of volunteers. Uh, we have uh, some big jugs of water here if you need to fill up uh, one of your water bladders. Holman's a tall Marine veteran with a beard speckled with red hair. His group, the Battalion Search and Rescue, comes to Arizona's vast, rugged borderland, looking for people who need help and those who've already succumbed to the harsh terrain. One of the things I look for is no roads. We want to go where there's no roads because this is where migrants are pushed to. Holman estimates he's come across almost 100 sets or pieces of human remains himself, searching the borderlands in California and Arizona. One of the most recent was in June, during a solo mission some 200 miles west of here, near the Lukeville port of entry. He found the body of a young man inside a cement culvert underneath a road used by the Border Patrol and other law enforcement. 
It was just a few feet from the border wall. I was basically looking at a silhouette. A photo Holman took on that day shows a shadowed figure inside the pipe. A hand is reaching upward into the air. His fingers are rigid. The dark bollards of the steel wall are visible just beyond him. Holman found the man's shoes and hat just outside the tunnel. I mean, this is a very unusual case, you know, to find a, a person like that in a culvert like that right next to the damn border wall. Holman was led right to the body that day by a set of coordinates provided by an aid group in California. It was one of three different sets of coordinates analyzed in the hopes of finding one migrant, a Mexican man in his 20s who went missing in the Arizona desert almost three weeks before. Two sets of coordinates didn't lead anywhere. So right now we're exactly on the coordinates that the... NGO reported where possibly there will be remains and they said that it could possibly be the migrant that was left behind that was walking south because he had a leg injury. That's Border Patrol agent Jesus Vasa-Bilbaso. In June, a different aid group sent the agency two sets of coordinates they believed could belong to the man Holman discovered. I joined agents to see where they led. One brought us to a bumpy dirt road along the 30-foot steel bollard wall. Vasa Bilbaso says agents went to both locations just a few days apart, but their search turned up no results. The culvert where Holman found the body was actually five miles further down the road. The coordinates they had weren't accurate. Still, Jacqueline Ariano, with Border Kindness, an aid group in California, says that's much more than searchers usually have to go off. From an outsider perspective, being like, oh, wow, there's three sets of coordinates and they're five miles apart, that's really like complicated, it's really sad because that's way better information than we usually have. Arellano got a call from the Mexican man's family a week after he went missing in Arizona. He had decided to turn back to Mexico, had contacted his family, said he was going to be at a certain location on the Mexican side, and then he wasn't there. Holman found a body later that day. All told, three different aid groups, the Border Patrol and the Mexican consulate, were involved with the search, but he still wasn't found alive. It's a complex and chaotic coordination that Rafael Barcelo, with the Mexican consulate in Tucson, knows well. His office receives calls from Mexican families with missing loved ones every week. He says getting GPS coordinates in recent years has helped, but... Even having those, there is no guarantee, which is, of course, something very hard to grasp for the families of the people who are frustrated because their loved ones aren't being uh, encountered. More than 120 sets of human remains have been recovered from Arizona's borderland this year. The body Holman found in June was one of eight recovered in the Cabeza Prieta National Wildlife Refuge. Holman says he can't understand why these deaths on public land in Arizona aren't talked about more. You know, that's, that's crazy. We're in the wealthiest country in the world and people are dying in our backyard here every damn day. You know, and we leave them. We leave them there. Holman says he wishes there was more effort from the federal government to change that. But until there is, he says his group will keep searching. Alisa Resnick, KJZZ News, reporting from Arizona's border with Mexico. In education news. Starting next year, students will be able to pursue bachelor's degrees at some of the Maricopa County community colleges. Catherine Davis-Young has more on the new programs. 
The district plans to introduce seven bachelor's programs in fall 2023, including in elementary education, behavioral science, and information technology. A BS in nursing is also being planned for 2024. Maricopa Community Colleges says it designed programs in high-growth, high-demand fields. The district is still in the process of applying for accreditation for the programs. If approved, these will be the first baccalaureate programs ever offered by Maricopa Community Colleges. Arizona lawmakers in 2021 passed a bill to allow community colleges to offer four-year degrees. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And KJZZ is licensed to the Maricopa County Community Colleges District. Finally, in tribal resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. The White Mountain Apache Tribe has been working with the Bureau of Reclamation on a dam project for years. And as Ron Dungan reports, the project is one step closer to completion. The Bureau recently opened an environmental impact statement on the Minor Flat Dam to public comments. Although many of the reservation's communities are located near the White River, the tribe gets its water from wells. The dam could potentially provide water to tribal communities from the Fort Apache area to Sibiquiu. It could also divert water for agriculture. The reservation is located about 180 miles east of Phoenix. Ron Dungan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. This has been the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.